may be seated. This morning, I want you to turn your Bible to the book of Job, chapter 38. Job, chapter 38. Also, I want to let you know that in your bulletin, uh, if recently in a church service uh, you have uh, trusted Christ as your Savior, um, there is a baptismal service coming up at the end of this month, the 26th, and you just take your phone out, turn your camera on, scan the QR code in your bulletin, you can notify us and let us know that you would like to participate in that baptismal service, and I will get in contact with you uh, about <clears throat> everything that you need to do in order to prepare for that. We already have two candidates for baptism at the end of the month, so we just continue to rejoice. This is our second baptismal service of 2022, and the Lord has been kind and gracious to us that in both of those baptismal services that we have had candidates uh, for baptism, and so we look forward to the two young ladies that will be going through the baptismal waters at the end of this month, but again, um, or let me just rephrase something I said several months back. Maybe you were saved uh, years ago and you never followed the Lord and believed in baptism. Um, baptism it, it does not assure you that you will go to heaven. As a matter of fact, it doesn't really have anything to do with you getting into heaven or not. But baptism is the actual first step of obedience as a Christian. And so um, as I shared the story several months back, about a young man in our church, well, I guess he was in his early 30s, who had uh, been baptized, who had been saved several times as a, as a child and as a teenager, but didn't really come to faith in Christ until he was in his mid-20s, uh, but had never been baptized. And he came to me and he said, you know, well, Jason, he said, I, I really think part of my struggle uh, these last years uh, since being saved could be the fact that I haven't been obedient to the Lord and what I should have done, and that is to actually be legitimately baptized after I was really legitimately saved. And uh, we baptized uh, Grant Cockle here at this church to the surprise of many people. And we were able to share that story and, and keeping up with Grant over the years, uh, just to hear his constant testimony of how that was a uh, life-changing moment for his spiritual journey with the Lord. And so if, if you fall into that category, then uh, please be a part of that service. I, I'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, but like I said, use that QR code there. All you got to do is give us your name and a contact number, and I'll get in contact with you. Hopefully you found Job chapter 38 this morning. I want to talk to you about your God is too small. Your God is too small. That's going to be a minute before we get to our actual text. So just... Hold your place there. As Americans, we really prefer a small God. Now, we, we may not want to admit to that, but, but that's really our preference. We, we need a God that we can manage, a God that we can predict, right? A God that we can control. We want a God that feels safe to us, one that we can fully understand and explain. I don't know why we feel the need that we always got to be God's defense law. Right? God, God doesn't need you to defend him any more than a lie needs you to defend him. You just need to turn God loose. 
one that doesn't embarrass us or confuse us or contradict us or make us mad. We want the kind of God that C.S. Lewis called in his series of children's books, The Chronicles of Narnia, when he spoke of Aslan, who was a representation of Jesus. We, we, we want a tamed life. But the God of the Bible is quite opposite of a small and, and, and manageable God. He, he is bigger than all the words we use to say big. He, he defies our abilities to categorize or describe him. Most Americans want a God who is only slightly bigger and, slight, and a slightly smarter version than us. The God of the Bible is something altogether different. And here's the irony. Only a God like that is capable of explaining life's mysteries, giving us a real sense of purpose in the world, and igniting our passion. It's like what British philosopher Evelyn Underhill famously said, a God small enough to be understood is not big enough to be worshipped. Now, that would have been a great place for you Baptists to say amen. amen. See, that's, that's, that's the point. we got a God that's way too small. Solomon calls this the fear of God and says that it is necessary for any proper relationship with God. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Without trembling all before the majesty of God, we'll never really know God. And, and guess what? We'll never trust Him, and even more so, we'll never walk with Him. If you've been around here for a while, I've been here 14 years now, believe it or not. It seems like it's been a lot longer than that at times. And sometimes it feels like it was just yesterday that I showed up. But some of you have endured 14 years. Man, the crowns, the jewels that will be in your crown when you get to heaven. For all the long sermons you said and even the shorter ones that you've been sitting through here recently. <laughs> you know that I've tried to be honest with you in 14 years, as honest as I can be, and maybe sometimes, maybe too honest, about my own struggles with belief that I've had throughout my life. Like one of the struggles that, that, has, that I've wrestled with for many years, and even still to this day, continue to wrestle with. Not, not nearly as it's not nearly the, as big a fight as it used to be, but still this, this question creeps up into my mind. Why is there so much suffering in the world? And especially in these last days when, good gracious, you can't even turn on the TV, right? Without four people dead, ten people dead, twenty people dead. Uh, without fires, floods, tsunamis, hurricanes, and on and on and on and on it goes. It, 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 you know what? It's funny, Brandy and I, uh, we... When we get home from work, uh, we usually uh, start trying to, or she does, get suffering. Sometimes I participate in that event. Other times I don't participate in that event. But we turn the TV on. We turn it to the news, trying to catch up for the day. And sometimes we catch the end of ABC 3340 News. Or sometimes we, we get on the, the front end of, of uh, uh, David Muir, uh, his news broadcast. And, and I told Brandon that day, I said, boy, David Muir is so predictable. When he comes home, breaking news. Why? Because everything is just over the top. 
wild these days, right? I mean, this world feels like it is just spinning even more out of control than it's ever been. I get that God can use some pain for good purposes, right? But what possible good could God have in the Holocaust? Or how does the concept of hell align with the view of a loving God? Or how about this one? If Christianity is true, why do so few people believe in it? And what I mean is so few people really believe in it. There's a lot of people that believe in it, but just because you believe it don't mean you believe it. What I mean by believe is that you believe it and therefore you live it out. That's what I mean by believe. Why so few people really believe it? And why is it that God isn't, why, and why isn't God doing more about it to get people saved? Why not send an angel down to preach the gospel? I mean, he's done that in the past. I mean, like when Jesus, showed, when Jesus came to the earth, he showed up to a bunch of shepherds. Why, why can't we have, look, I've often asked God, God, could you not do something a lot more miraculous then use a bunch of clay pots like me and other Christians to be your messengers of salvation. Because I feel like most of the time we, we do such a poor job of getting his wonderful message to people. Maybe you've had some of these questions, and maybe you've had others that I haven't had. And sometimes I thought, you know, the, the fact that I can't understand or explain these things may mean that God doesn't exist. And I can tell you about personal events in my life that have transpired over the years, and I won't go into details about those, but trust me, I've had some events in my life that have really shaken my faith to the core. And I know you have as well. I've come to see, this is, this is what's happened in my own life, I've come to see that one of my primary problems in all of this was, the, that, was that my conception of God was way way, way too small. I thought of God just slightly bigger and slightly smarter version of me, a, a God that I could easily understand and a God that I could easily explain, but that's absolutely not the God of the Bible. And that, con and that conception of God is just not, listen, it's just not able to sustain faith. You see, it's only by grappling with the size of God that I develop the ability to really believe. In this message, I want to unpack the experience of the man in the Bible. His name is Job, who had more questions for God than anyone else that I've read about in all of Holy Writ. In fact, his name has become synonymous with confusion and doubt. Now, what do we know about Job? We don't know much. He is said to be from the land of us. Scholars, when you ask Bible scholars, where is us? They have no idea where it is. It sounds like a place that you find at the end of the yellow brick road, right? <laughs> we don't know what time period Job lives in or what nationality he is. We know he's not an Israelite because he doesn't have an Israelite name. But this lack of detail, scholars tell us, is intentional. Why? Why? Why is it intentional that this information that is often given to us about other biblical characters, why is this not put forth about Job? Because the author evidently does not want us to get fixated 
on Job's particular historical situation. He, he wants us to focus on the questions raised by Job's suffering, questions that are universal, questions that everyone asks. We are told in Job 1.1 that Job is what? He's blameless and upright, which is a Hebrew word for saying uh, he helped little old ladies cross the street. He always ate his vegetables. Okay, maybe none of those are helping me. How about this? He's such a good dude that every time Apple sends him a software update, he reads all of the terms and conditions before agreeing. <laughs> He's a stellar. He's a stellar fellow. He's just a good guy. There's, there's really no one else like Job in all of life. But here's what's interesting about this story of Job. There is a heavenly meeting that takes place. Right after this, this brief introduction of Job, this meeting begins to unfold in front of our eyes. We, we get whisked into heaven to where God is apparently having this meeting. And those that are attending, among those that are attending, is this fella who is quite interesting. His Hebrew name is Satan. You said, no, it's Satan. is the Satan. What does that mean? He's the accuser, the prosecutor. And he raises a challenge before God about Job. He says this, it's on the screen. You, you know God. The, the only reason people serve you is that it's in their own self-interest. They serve you because you give them stuff. You know, Satan is a pretty smart guy. Because a lot, a, a lot of people that call themselves Christians only come to find that they're really not Christians because if something doesn't go right and some of their stuff gets taken away, all of a sudden, when their stuff gets taken away, they can't say, blessed be the name. They say, bye-bye God. He says, let them suffer and they'll give up on you. So God says, okay, take Job. You can have everything in his life from him that he loves. And you'll see that he values me for me. And if you have been in church any amount of time or read your Bible at all, you are familiar with what happens next, are you not? And for the next two chapters, what happens? Satan takes everything from Job. Takes everything. Interestingly, you know the one thing, it just it just dawned on me this way. What was the one thing Satan didn't touch? It's <laughs> Maybe he learned something that we mentioned, like don't mess with the woman. You know, when I was a kid, I was always told, be careful who you pick your fights with, right? There's some fight, you know, sometimes you just let a lying dog lie. No, no need to stir it out. But anyway, he doesn't mess with Job's wife. I'm not sure what that means. She, she turns out to be pretty cranky. Not saying it all women are cranky. <laughs> At some point in this narrative, you should be asking, wait, what? 
what in the world, why, why in the world would God allow this to happen to good old Job? And then we'd expect the rest of the book to provide the answers to this question, right? But that's not what we get. Chapter 3 enters Job's friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Namathite, and the shortest man in the Bible shows up. Anybody know his name? His name is Shemite. Get it? Shemite. Sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's not. But you throw it out there and see if it sticks and doesn't stick. Could be a fun question to ask your friends. Hey, do you know who the shortest guy in the Bible is? Anyway, these men try to explain Job's suffering using the best of ancient wisdom. Not much has changed today, right? You know somebody that's going through a hard time, and what do you want to do? What text message can I send? Is there a bit emoji? Maybe I say anything. Maybe a bit emoji. Is there a shit out there that might do? Help my friend out. A Bible verse. Oh, a Bible verse. What Bible verse could I send my friend out? I don't know why it is when somebody's going through a tough time, why we feel like we got to talk. Sometimes it's best to keep your mouth closed. Presence can provide more help than what you want to pontificate out of your mouth. Not to say that what you were going to say or the Bible verse that you were going to share wasn't appropriate. It just may not be right for the moment. For what it's worth, they seem to be halfway decent friends. They sat with Job in his misery for seven days, and they try to comfort him. Basically, they say to Job, look, we know God is just, and we know that everything happens for a reason. So the fact that you're suffering means there is a reason that God is doing this to you. And Job pushes back. That's not true. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm innocent of anything that would warrant this. And they hold their line. Look, Job, there has to be something. God is just and everything happens for a reason. So think hard. What is it? And listen. Are you ready? This goes on for 37 chapters. Job is exasperated. And he basically says, listen, guys, you're wrong. And the more you talk, the worse I feel. He basically says, you're not helping me at all. It reminds me of the story of the man who gets pulled over. The officer says, you know how fast you were going? The man says, no. His wife says, yes, you do. <laughs> Did you know that your tail light was out? She says, oh, he's known for he says, why aren't you wearing your seatbelt? Took it off when you were coming up. No, you didn't. You were never wearing it. Finally, the man yells, woman, will you just be quiet? To which the officer says, does he normally talk to you this way? And she said, no, only when he's drunk. 
I get the big questions, but why the little questions? The point is to show perspective. God is saying, Job, if you can't even fathom all the mystery behind natural things, are you really in place to understand eternal things? You see, the assumption that Job and all of his friends are working off of is that they know enough about the world to analyze and understand God's ways. But God says, your perspective, perspective on the world is quite puny. Mine is huge. You don't even understand a simple thing like constellation creation or ostrich ugliness. And see, if you don't understand the mystery behind finite things, limited things like this, do you really think that you're in a place to hold court on me? To understand infinite justice, you need to have an infinite perspective. And then in chapter 40, God says, while we're at it, Job, would you really like to run the world for a day? How many of y'all have seen Bruce online? You know what I mean? Love the part where Morgan Freeman is God. Okay, Bruce, you think you can run it better than I can? Here you go. Using the login passwords and prayer hotline. Right? All the prayers are coming in. He's trying to read them and answer it. You know, and they're just coming in so fast he gets overwhelmed. And finally, Jim Carrey's character, Bruce, Bruce does what we would do. He does control A, that's select all, and he types in the word yes. See, he cracks his knuckles, he leans back in his chairs, and he says, that's what I'm talking about. What did he do? He just answered yes to every prayer. And then, do you remember what happens in the movie? The next, I don't know if it's the next shot, but within a few frames, all of a sudden, everything in the world is going crazy. Everybody's winning the lottery at one time. You know, stuff is just randomly and crazily happening. You see, if, 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 if we got a chance to run the world, Y'all think it's jacked up now? Oh boy. We wouldn't know what jacked up is until we got to hold that. You really want to punish every little act of injustice in every instance? Do you know how many different things are happening in the world at one time? How many things are interconnected? At the end of chapter 40, God basically says, this is quite a bit more complicated than you thought, isn't it, little man? The book, of, uh, the book ends with God restoring everything to Job sevenfold, but, never, but we never get real satisfying answers to the question of why, why all this happened to Job in the first place. And neither did Job. All we get are more questions. And these questions make five points in your life. going to be fast. They don't need explanation. You ready? You're right fast. I'll preach fast. I'll be done four minutes after that. My, my power is sovereign. It's number one. My power is sovereign. His power is sovereign. In his book, we see God's absolute power of creation, angels, and Satan. We see Satan can do nothing without God's permission. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And we see that God has purposes in creation that go far beyond our purview. For example, God talks about watering the land where there are no laws. Did you notice that in the text? To bring rain on the land where, uh, where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man. 
C.S. Lewis said about that verse, he said the point is not, the point is that not everything in creation is for man. Sometimes God thinks solely for himself. The one thing we do know about Job's suffering was that its ultimate purpose was to bring glory to God. God was demonstrating his glory to Satan and all the angels through Job's suffering. And I know some of you might say, well, that's a hard thing to live with, that God is using my suffering for his glory. But I'm telling you, that's the secret to a happy and fulfilled life. You and all the world exist for God's glory. When you realize that, you'll find a joy and satisfaction you've never known because you were created to live that way. This is the verse you need to write down, Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for what? My glory, for whom I formed and made. God's power is sovereign, and his perspective is infinite. His perspective is infinite. The climax of God's argument comes in 42.3, when God says, Who is the one who I have counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job, if you don't even understand the mystery behind natural phenomena, like storms and stars, are you really in place to understand the purposes of the eternal God above them? So there's a problem that philosophers call the problem of evil. Epicurus, a philosopher in the 5th century, said, if, all, if God is all-loving and powerful, then why does, why does suffering exist? You see, they're missing the premise. God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. But here's what they leave out of that. God is all-wise. Do a thought exper experiment with me how much higher God's power is than mine. Think about how much power it would have taken to create the known universe. Even if you don't believe there is a God, how much power must he have? Astronomers estimate the number of stars to be 3,000 billion trillion, otherwise known as three septillion. That's three with 24 zeros at the end. Million, billion, trillion, or septillion all sound kind of all the same after a while, right? Do you know what you were doing a million seconds ago? Anybody? That was 11 days ago, the middle of last week. What were you doing? What about a billion seconds ago? Do you remember what you were doing then? I do. It's 31 years and 8 months ago. I had just begun my senior year in high school. Some of you, of course, can't remember that because there was no you to speak of. How about a trillion seconds ago? How long would it think, how long do you think it would that would be? A couple of centuries back, a trillion seconds ago was 29,672 BC before Christ. It's about the time the first rocket vision came out. Now think about the fact that there were at least three billion trillion stars, each one of them putting out roughly the same amount of energy as a trillion megaton atom bomb every second. Some are so big they defy description, like uh, Eta uh, Canier. Uh, that's a star in our Milky Way, and it is, listen to this, it is five times, five million times brighter than our sun. 
All of them were created in a single moment with a single word from God. Now get your big emoji out with your animal on. Because that, that's, that's the way you respond to that. Look, yesterday, I'm, I'm trying to lose the shape around and find a different shape. So I, I made this commitment for like the hundredth time in my life. Let's not, you know, my, my daughters keep saying, Dad, the dad body is now out. Let's find a different body. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to find something not. So I, yesterday I go for a walk and I come home, I get on my rower, I've got this Concept 2 rower, really cool machine, piece of machinery. I get on it and I'm like, 60 watts, that's, that's my goal. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna maintain 60 watts for five minutes. Brady came home from some artsy fartsy festival and uh, <laughs> I'm sitting on the couch, he goes, are you okay? Just recovering from a five minute <laughs> Do you know what 60 watts can do? It can light up a 60 watt light bulb. I have enough power in my body for five minutes to sustain a 60 watt light bulb. What in the world am I thinking about when it even comes to questioning God about anything? Me, who can light a 60 watt light bulb for five whole minutes and then feel like I'm going to die. Knees hurt, back hurts, head is spinning. It used to not be that way, but that's where I am now in, in my state of life. If his wisdom is high as if his wisdom is as high above mine as his power is above mine, the most rational conclusion is that there will be some things beyond my immediate ability to understand, right? Amen. It's entirely possible that God has beautiful purposes that he is working out that we just can't see yet. Bart Ehrman, he is a professor at UNC Chapel Hill. He's also a proponent. Uh, he's an atheist, and he is constantly trying to destroy people's faith. He said that he lost his faith. He was once a Christian and a Bible scholar because he said uh, because of what he calls the purposeless evil. There's a huge assumption behind his claim of purposeless evil, that if there is a purpose, he'd be wise enough to detect it. Isn't it rather arrogant to assume that not with our limited knowledge, we would be able to perceive every purpose of an infinitely wise God? Our core problem is that we don't think God is as much bigger than us on a slightly smarter version. Look at what it says who is this that has counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, a right understanding of God, of who God is, helps us to ask right questions. God is sovereign. His, his perspective is infinite. And his purpose is guaranteed. His purpose is guaranteed. So let me give you some encouragement as we close out this morning. Because God is sovereign, his purpose is infinite. Even Satan's attempts to attack him attack God's people only further God's purposes. That's the kind of God I love. Amen. Uh, Spurgeon said that what God does here is that he just constantly is making Satan commit suicide. 
Satan is trying to put the noose around your neck when what God is really doing is putting the noose around Satan's neck. All of Satan's attack on Job yielded a book that has provided encouragement to countless believers down through the centuries. Do you think that's what Satan had planned? No, and yet we see this throughout Scripture. Satan's strategy to defeat the sons of God only serves to provide salvation to the sons of men. God's doing the same thing with your struggles. If you think about it, you can probably already see some of the good things behind what God is doing. I think of some of the, I think here are the words of a guy named Malcolm uh, Muggeridge, who was a British dude. He said, contrary to what I've expected, I look back now on experiences that I've, that at, that at the time seemed especially devastating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything of value that I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not through comfort and ease. Can anybody testify to that? Say amen. Amen. And some of you should have. Here's the perspective of Job. If, all, if already we can look back and see a good purpose for some of the suffering in our lives, don't we think, given infinite time and perspective, we'll see a reason for all of it? Some, sometimes what God is doing, some, sometimes what God is doing, He's doing in you. Sometimes God lets us suffer in order to chastise or correct us bring us back like we see in Jonah. Sometimes it's so that he can work out salvation in others. Think of Joseph. Sometimes, however, is to purify us so that we would love him more. And that's what we see in Job. Suffering is how God shapes you for himself. Martin Luther said, as soon as God chooses you, he lets the devil afflict you and turn you into a real doctor of the word. Luther said, I credit the devil, the Pope, and all my other persecutors with, with my deep knowledge of the word. Through the devil's rage, raging, they have turned me into a fairly good preacher, driving me into the gospel, into the depths I never would have reached without their affliction. This is what the gospel is all about. Satan's strategy is to defeat the sons of, of God, only serves to provide salvation to the sons of men. So the question this morning is, not why am I suffering, but what is God doing in my suffering? Then his promise is everlasting. His promise is everlasting. His promise is everlasting. For I know that my Redeemer lives, is what he says, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. That phrase, at the last, speaks of eternity. The last scene in the book of Job is God restoring sevenfold of what Job like. Look, we like that part, right? Seven is the picture of eternity. In this scene, we're given a glimpse of what eternity is will be like when God restores to us all that we have lost and gives us perfect joy. I love what Psalm 1611 says. You make known to me the path of your life and your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy cannot get any stronger and forever, forever joy is a joy that cannot last any longer. Think about this. How long is eternity? How long is that? How about those smart people in the world? The Bible says a day in heaven is a thousand years on earth, a thousand years on earth is a day in heaven. If you use that as a standard measurement of time in heaven, then if you live to be the average age of a human being here on earth, then your 
your lifespan in heaven is 91 seconds. I did the math. That means what? What you're going through here on earth is nothing compared to what awaits you in eternity. I used to tell athletes when I was training them, I said, you can do anything for 60 seconds. Because most, most, most athletic moves take about 60 seconds or less to do. You can do anything for 60 seconds. Listen, we can endure anything here on earth because of what, because of the reward that awaits us for eternity in heaven. Mother Teresa compared eternity to the worst thing on earth or like nothing more than a bad night in a cheap hotel. Recognize, recognizing that is the key to coping with suffering in life. C.S. Lewis said, if you look at this world as a place to find happiness, you'll be miserable and confused. If you look at it, if you look at it as a training, you'll find purpose and joy. Last, my presence is pledged. That's the last point. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. I wonder what Job was thinking when he wrote that. Because, see, we know that even more than he did, we saw our Redeemer come live and stand here with us on the earth. Why did he come? He came to take our punishment in our place so that we would never again be separated from God. He was wounded so that we could be eternally healed. He was abandoned for us so that we could be eternally embraced. His mercy, David, come on, is ever-present with me, and I never have to worry about what he's doing in my life. He stands by my side because he stood in my place. I love the words of A.W. Tozer. When he says, with the goodness of God, with the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? I may not know exactly what God is doing in my pain, but the cross shows me what suffering can't mean. It can't mean that God has forsaken me or that God has lost control. Think about the cross as we close. God's love, Romans 8, he did not spare his own son. God's control. If there was ever a time when he looked, when it looked like God was absent or had lost control, but there, God was doing his greatest work. And that's where he, and that's what he's doing right now through your pain. If you it may feel to you like a dark night of the soul, but God is working in it the power of the resurrection. As we get ready to sing this last song, think about these words right on the screen. Your Redeemer came and stood in your place entered into your pain for you, took death for you, and now stands victoriously by your side in the resurrection, promising you one day that you will stand with him eternally. So in your pain, you have his presence. This is why God showed you. My power is sovereign. My perspective is infinite. My purpose is guaranteed. My promise is everlasting. And I pledge my presence. Job wouldn't answer, but guess what God gave him? Presence. And that presence was enough. As soon as Job saw God, who God was, Job was satisfied before he was restored. When God finally appeared, Job was so busy repenting that he didn't have any time for any further questions. 
His rage was now directed at himself. Therefore, despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You think you need explanations you can understand? You're like Job's friends. You think if God would just explain it all to me, I'd be satisfied? What you really need is a relation. It's a revelation of who God is. And that he's big enough. And that he's God enough. To work all the mess out for your good. And faithful and loving enough that he promises he'll do just that. There's so much more I can say here. But I think you get the gist of what I'm trying to say this morning. There he is. This is what I want, that's what I want you to see in the end. Look at this one. Look at this five faces on the screen. These guys are called the Aka Five. In the 1950s, these, these young men with families picked up their lives and moved to a remote jungle down in South America to, to, to reach a tribe that had never heard the gospel called the Aka Indians. The Aka Indians were known to be uh, a murderous tribe, a cannibalist tribe. Matter of fact, they were so deadly that certain oil companies had tried to go in and drill on the land that they lived on, and they, and they were ran off. Some, some of the workers were even killed by these tribal individuals. But these five guys heard about the Aka Indians, and they said, you know what? We're going to give our lives, if necessary, to the Aka Indians. We're going to go down, we're going to make contact with them, and we're going to share the gospel with them. Steve Sank, his dad was in that picture. Steve Sank's dad was one of the five that, when they finally landed their plane in, not, uh, in the 50s, uh, on a sandbar there in the river, called, their little plane was called 57 Henry. It was a yellow plane. They got out and Within an hour of being off the plane, they had been speared to death. You can uh, watch a movie called End of the Spear, and it retells this whole account that I'm talking to you about this morning. But Steve Saint's father was one of the ones that was murdered at the beaches that day in Ecuador. Steve Saint went back, and he lived amongst the Aka Indians. Matter of fact, Steve Saint met, met the man that they called Mikaini, and Mikaini was the man who murdered Steve Saint's father. Steve Saint shared the gospel with this man named Mikaini. And he prayed and received Christ as his Savior. Steve Saint and, and his children have since, quote unquote, adopted him as their father and grandfather. Steve Saint said these words. Why is it? That we want every chapter to be good when God promises only that in the last chapter he will make all the other chapters make sense. Don't we see God will do this with all our stories in eternity? I don't care what you I don't care what's going on in your life right now. It may not make sense and it may hurt to the deepest depths of your soul. But listen. I agree wholeheartedly with a huge amen to what Steve Saint said. Why do we think, why do we want every chapter to be good when God promises that he is going to take every chapter and at the end it will all make sense. He will do good with it all.
if he was willing to give his son to die for you, then he is willing, that he is worthy of your absolute trust. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are worthy of our absolute trust. But we confess this morning, we, we, we struggle. We struggle because sin in our life convolutes this message. It, it jumbles it up in our mind. It's, it, it's, 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 it's almost like the, the words are on the page, but they're all mixed up and, and we can't understand it. But yet, Father, in your word this morning, you've given us a few simple truths that we can hold on to. And that we can begin to make sense of what doesn't make sense right now. But even in what doesn't make sense, we can know that no matter how bad that part that doesn't make sense really is, that when the story is complete, when, when you have put the final period at the end of the story, and you bring us into your reality, you bring us into eternity, we'll realize what you were doing in those chapters that simply did not make sense. But Father, what I pray for this congregation and myself this morning is that you would strengthen our faith to believe that, to live that out in those moments where we get sideways and, and we get shaken and, and, and it seems like we're about to be turned upside down that, that these truths will root us and hold us firm in our faith. We pray you would do that because you're the only one who can do that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stay on the scene this last song.